Hello, and welcome to The Space Above Us. Episode 121, Space Shuttle Flight 49, STS-46, Bolt from the Black. Last time, we talked about the marathon mission of STS-50. Breaking the previous shuttle flight duration record by several days, this microgravity space lab mission was a key step on the road to the International Space Station. Given the focus of the mission, we spent a few minutes clarifying the difference between zero gravity, weightlessness, and microgravity. And actually, on that point, I have one more minor clarification to make. After thinking about it some more, I realized that even NASA's preferred term, microgravity, is a bit of a misnomer. Really, it means that the environment is as if the gravity were extremely small. But of course, as we discussed, gravity is still quite strong in low Earth orbit strong enough to hurl a quarter-million-pound orbiter around the world every 90 minutes. I think a more technically accurate term might be micro-acceleration environment as viewed from the reference frame traveling with the orbiter. But that's a little wordy, so I guess we'll just stick with microgravity. Today's mission will attempt to do something that has never been done before, utilizing a tether in space. And by tether, I basically just mean a rope or a cable or something similar. Now wait, I hear you saying. We use tethers in space all the time. That's how astronauts performing EVAs don't just float away. That's true, but that's not what I mean. Those are just a couple of feet of cable that the crew clips onto the shuttle. Okay, fine, I now hear you saying. What about Gemini 11 or 12? Okay, that's fair. If you think way back to 1966, the final two flights of Project Gemini did indeed attempt some interesting experiments using a long tether. First, Dick Gordon and then Buzz Aldrin made their way over to the Agena target vehicle and attached a 100-foot-long tether. They would later undock and attempt to use the tether to facilitate station keeping, trying a gravity gradient stabilized orientation and then a slow rotation. The tethers were of dubious utility, and they never quite worked the way the folks on the ground expected. But what we're talking about today is totally different. Rather than talking about tethers around 30 meters in length, we'll be investigating a tether that's around 20,000 meters in length. This is clearly a whole new ballgame. Okay, so why? This seems crazy. Why do we want such a long tether? There's actually a few pretty interesting potential applications. Compared to something like a metal truss, a tether is incredibly lightweight and small. The tether we'll be carrying today weighs only a couple hundred pounds and fits into a container about the size of a large trash barrel. So if you want to build a large structure, tethers can make it possible without hauling up a bunch of heavy structural elements. Another potential application would be to string a tether between two large elements of a space station, with crew on one and servicing equipment on the other. The two could then be made to rotate around their common center of mass, imparting a sort of artificial gravity onto the astronauts through the centrifugal force. Though, just to nip that one in the bud, I will say that such an arrangement in low Earth orbit is actually a little trickier than it might seem, due to the gravity gradient that comes with being so close to a planet. But it does have potential for keeping human bones healthy on long voyages through deep space, perhaps to Mars. My favorite potential application is to unspool a tether dozens of kilometers long and lower a payload into the upper atmosphere. Such an experiment would be able to directly study the region of the atmosphere that's too high for balloons and too low for satellites. It could also be used to validate the aerodynamics of hypersonic vehicles at high altitudes. But the possibilities get really interesting when you throw electricity into the mix. 
just to take a quick step back to high school physics class, how do humans make electricity? Other than solar power, basically everything boils down to spinning magnets past conductive wires. Coal or natural gas? You're burning fuel to heat up some water, make steam, and use the steam to run turbines, which spin magnets near conductive wires. Nuclear power? You're harnessing a fission reaction to heat up some water, make steam, and use the steam to run turbines, which spin magnets near conductive wires. Hydroelectric? Eh, skip the steam and just divert some water that's flowing downhill through some turbines, which spin magnets near conductive wires. Why? Because if you move a magnet past a conductive wire, you induce a current. That's it. That's how it all works, because that's how electromagnetism works. You can even see it for yourself if you get one of those emergency flashlights that you shake to charge up. Most of them are transparent, so that you can see the coil of copper wire and the permanent magnet that you're moving back and forth as you shake it. The magnet moves through the coil, which changes the magnetic flux, which induces a current, giving you a pretty weak but infinitely reliable flashlight. The important thing to realize here is that it doesn't matter if you're moving the magnet past the wire or the wire past the magnet. They both generate electricity. So what if you were to take a really long conductive wire and, oh, I don't know, fly it around a planet-sized magnet at 25,000 kilometers per hour? By dangling a conductive tether off of the back of the shuttle, dragging it through the Earth's magnetic field, it was possible to generate electricity. And perhaps more intriguingly, it worked both ways. If you were to complete the circuit, which is a tricky process that involves some electron guns in the orbiter, but if you were to complete the circuit and then send your own electricity down the tether, it would sort of push off of the magnetic field. Done just right, it could even be used to change a spacecraft's orbit, all without the use of a consumable propellant. It's also apparently a great opportunity to deploy some really dumb puns, as evidenced by this excerpt from the mission press kit. Quote, Operating the tethered system is a bit like trolling for fish in a lake or the ocean, but the potential catch is valuable data that may yield scientific insights from the vast sea of space. Boo, press kit. Boo. Okay, hopefully all that convinced you that tethers in space are a thing that might be worth looking into. But are there any reasons not to? Actually, yeah, kind of a lot. For one thing, that whole change your orbit without fuel thing is true, but almost certainly far more trouble than it's worth. The effect would be pretty small and would constantly be changing depending on where in the orbit the spacecraft is and what the space weather was like that day, all of which impacts the local electromagnetic environment. So it would be a lot of dynamic effort for not a huge effect. Plus, the benefit would likely be outweighed by the next problem. Tethers are incredibly complicated. As anyone who has ever pulled a tangled set of headphones out of a bag knows firsthand, the dynamics of a long wire, cable, rope, or tether are complex and unpredictable. With such a long tether, there were all sorts of nightmare scenarios that had to be protected against. What if the tether wrapped around the orbiter, damaging the thermal protection system and preventing the payload bay doors from closing? What if it built up a resonant motion and started wiggling around with more and more force, whipping around whatever heavy payload was on the end? For a visual, look up a video of the Tacoma Narrows Bridge, and now imagine it was ten times longer and next to the space shuttle. It's one of these problems that's just really difficult to model using computers and mathematics, even though at first glance it doesn't seem that bad. 
So clearly there are a lot of questions to be answered here. The utility of tethers in space can best be assessed by just bringing a tether to space. And the challenges of utilizing a tether in space, along with characterizing its real-world behavior, can also best be assessed by just bringing a tether to space. Lucky for us, in the 1970s, some Italian researchers got it in their heads that they'd really like to test a tether in space. In the early 1980s, the European Space Agency and NASA got together and worked out an arrangement. NASA would build the tether and the deployment mechanism, and ESA would build the satellite to sit at the end of the tether. And that's how the tethered satellite system came to be. Let's meet the crew that would fly it. Commanding the flight was going to be our old friend Hoot Gibson, but as we discussed a few episodes back, he found himself in some hot water when he participated in an air race a couple of years ago. During the race, he was involved in a mid-air collision where another pilot was killed. The tragic loss of the other pilot drew attention to the incident, and the fact that Gibson was participating in dangerous activities. This sort of behavior had been banned since an injured or killed astronaut, while clearly terrible on its own, also had big implications for any space missions they were assigned to. With hundreds of millions of dollars and countless human hours of time spent on these missions, it seems like a pretty reasonable request that the astronauts take care of themselves while they're on deck. So, Gibson was grounded for a year and removed from the command of STS-46. Don't feel too bad for old Hoot, though. We'll actually be seeing him on the very next flight after this one. Instead, commanding Atlantis on this flight was Lauren Shriver. We last saw Shriver ushering the Hubble Space Telescope into low Earth orbit on STS-31. This is his third and final flight, and with it, he brings us an interesting bit of space trivia. And by he brings us, I mean I thought it up in the shower, and by interesting, I mean pretty esoteric. With this flight, Lauren Shriver marks the last spaceflight of an American who had flown in space with someone who had flown to the moon. Shriver was the pilot on STS-51C, which was commanded by Ken Mattingly, who was the command module pilot on Apollo 16. Just to complete the useless trivia, the last person of any nationality to fly in space after previously flying with a lunar astronaut was Ulf Merbold, who flew with John Young on STS-9 and then went on to do a stint on the Russian space station Mir in 1994. Shriver will stay with NASA a little while longer, moving to Florida to help manage the shuttle program, but this was his last space flight. Joining Shriver up front and flying as pilot was Andy Allen. Andrew Allen was born on August 4th, 1955 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He earned a bachelor's in mechanical engineering from Villanova, just down the road, before heading off to the Marine Corps. There, he flew the F-4 Phantom and the F-A-18 Hornet. He graduated from the Navy's test pilot school and was serving as a test pilot when NASA came calling in 1987. Among other duties before his first space flight, Allen helped with the improved shuttle nose wheel steering. This is his first of three flights. Also on the flight deck was Mission Specialist 1, Claude Nicolet. Claude Nicolet was born on September 2nd, 1944 in Verve, Switzerland. He earned a bachelor's in physics from the University of Lushuna and a master's in astrophysics from the University of Geneva. I doubt that I'm pronouncing Verve or Lushuna correctly, but I'm doing what I can over here. In 1978, he was selected by the European Space Agency in Europe's first set of astronauts. He joined the 1980 class of astronauts, not as a payload specialist, as was typical for European astronauts, but as a full-blown mission specialist. 
To be honest, I'm not quite sure how this arrangement came to be, but here it is. 12 years is a long time to wait for his first space flight, but don't worry, this is his first of four. Mission Specialist 2, doing double duty as always as flight engineer, was Marsha Ivins. We know Ivins from her flight on STS-32, the LDEF retrieval flight. This is her second mission, but she's just getting started, since she'll fly a total of five times. Mission Specialist 3, serving as payload commander for this flight, was Jeff Hoffman. We last saw Hoffman flying on STS-35, the Astro-1 Space Lab flight. This is Hoffman's third flight, and he must be doing something right, because when we see him again, it'll be for a much-coveted slot on STS-61, the first Hubble servicing mission. Mission Specialist 4 is another crew member we'll be getting to know very well, Franklin Chang-Diaz. We last saw Chang-Diaz on STS-34, deploying the Galileo-Jupiter probe, making this his second flight in a row on Atlantis, and his third flight overall. I say we'll be getting to know him very well, because Franklin here is going to tie the record for most shuttle flights, with seven overall. And last, but certainly not least, our lone payload specialist, Payload Specialist 1, Franco Malerba. Franco Malerba was born on October 10, 1946, in Genova, Italy. Malerba holds a degree as an electronics engineer and a doctorate in physics, both from the University of Genova. He spent the 1970s on a variety of biophysics research efforts before being selected by the European Space Agency, along with Ulf Merbold, Vubo Ockels, and STS-46 crewmate Claude Nicolet. This is his first and only flight, but with it he becomes the first Italian to fly in space. On July 31st, 1992, after decades of hypothesizing about tethers in space, years of training for the missions, and a few uncomfortable hours on their backs, the crew of STS-46 was ready to go, the weather was ready to go, Launchpad 39B was ready to go, and Space Shuttle Atlantis was ready to go. The only notable hiccup in the countdown was an additional 48-second hold tacked on at the T-5 minute mark. The onboard computers and ground systems had correctly noted that one of the valves on Auxiliary Power Unit 3, which was expected to be open, was in fact closed. No big deal. Pilot Andy Allen reached over, flipped the appropriate switch to open the valve, and the count continued. The only reason that it was really notable at all is that the reason it was still closed was that Allen had failed to open it earlier. I'm not sure what caused this minor stumble from Allen, and it had no real impact to the mission, but it did earn him a good razzing from his fellow pilots when he got back. Oh well, no harm done. And at 9.56 a.m. Eastern Time, plus 48 seconds, Atlantis lifted off for the twelfth time. After an uneventful ascent and orbital insertion, the crew split up into their two teams, red and blue. Since the tether dynamics were so uncertain, and since there was no way to reel it in overnight, the team was split up into two, so there would always be someone keeping an eye on the satellite on the end of the tether. But the first order of business was for Claude Nicolet to test out the remote manipulator system, the shuttle's robotic arm. Ah, interesting. What are they going to do? Try using the arm to strum the tether like a giant guitar string? No, the RMS was being tested in preparation for the second primary payload of this flight, which I haven't even mentioned yet, the European Retrievable Carrier, which was shortened to Eureka. Eureka is a pretty nifty little satellite, and is sort of a mix between the long-duration exposure facility and space lab. On board the spacecraft were a number of experiments from a wide range of scientific disciplines. 
Not to be too reductive, but it's basically the sort of stuff you'd expect to see on a typical space lab flight. Crystal growth, studying the space environment, melting stuff, you get the idea. What was unusual is that Eureka would be dropped off into orbit and be left on its own to carry out its science until it was picked up by another shuttle a little bit down the road. The spacecraft was designed to be flown up to five times, so we'll hear a little more about it a few episodes from now. Unlike LDEF, Eureka was an active spacecraft. It had an attitude control system, a propulsion system, and two large solar arrays to provide power to the onboard experiments. It also had a communication system, but it wouldn't be getting quite as much use as you might expect. Europe only had two ground stations set up for Eureka to talk to, leading to extended periods with the spacecraft flying solo. Because of that, the onboard systems had a large degree of automation, running experiments requested by the scientists and reacting to any issues that might pop up. The plan was to get Eureka popped out of the payload bay on flight day one, but the crew hit some minor snags. Mission specialist Nikolay was able to use the RMS to grapple the spacecraft with no issues. Even the deployment of the solar arrays and antenna, sometimes a nail-biting moment, proceeded smoothly. But the crew kept losing communications with the spacecraft, and this was a problem, since if they deployed Eureka and it had a faulty communication system, it would almost certainly be lost forever, along with all of its valuable science data. There was apparently no rush to deploy, I'm guessing because the solar arrays extended as expected, so the crew left the spacecraft on the end of the arm for the next day. After more tests and more analysis, it was realized that the COM problem was probably just between Eureka and the orbiter, not a problem with Eureka itself. This was confirmed when the ground was able to communicate directly with the spacecraft while it was still on the end of the RMS. So, on flight day 2, 24 hours later than expected, Eureka was released and Atlantis backed away. Atlantis didn't back too far away though, only a little bit less than 300 meters. This way, the crew could monitor the spacecraft when it used its own thrusters to raise its orbit, and swoop in and pick it up if there was a problem. During this time, Atlantis passed into orbital night, with darkness enveloping the orbiter. At the same time, Atlantis also entered the narrow zone over the Indian Ocean, where there was no line of sight with the Tedris communications satellites. So it was, of course, at this worst possible time that pilot Andy Allen noticed range rate alerts coming from the radar tracking Eureka. According to the radar, the European science satellite was flying towards Atlantis and picking up speed. Huh, that's weird. But it's probably just a wonky radar and will clear itself up, right? Huh, it's not clearing itself up. And with no light outside, Allen couldn't see the satellite anywhere. Time to take evasive action. With little time to spare, when Allen fired the RCS thrusters, he went to the big, booming primary thrusters, scooting the orbiter out of the way of the incoming satellite and waking up some of the folks on the other shift. Allen recounts later that the incident was the result of German mission control sending the wrong command to Eureka. They had intended to change the satellite's attitude, to rotate it. Instead, they had fired its thrusters, sending the spacecraft towards Atlantis at around 1.3 meters per second, or 3 miles per hour. That may not sound that fast, but with Eureka having a mass of almost 4,500 kilograms, that would have been a real disaster if it had impacted Atlantis. So it's a good thing that Andy Allen acted when he did and averted the crisis. 
Eventually, Eureka used its thrusters as intended and raised its orbit to begin its science mission. See you on STS-57. While Eureka went up, Atlantis went down, lowering its orbit from 430 kilometers to 300 kilometers. It was time to try out the tethered satellite system. If you were to look out of the aft flight deck windows and into the payload bay, what you would see is the top half of a weird big white ball embedded in some support equipment. The ball was 1.5 meters across and weighed about 500 kilograms, and it was the satellite that would be reeled out on the end of the tether once the TSS experiment got underway. Protruding from the sides of the ball were what looked like menacing sci-fi weapons, but are actually just instruments tasked with measuring stuff like electric potential and other aspects of the experiment. Honestly, though, it looks like some sort of evil robot from the 1950s. It's not an evil robot from the 1950s, though. It's a friendly Italian robot from the 1990s. The satellite was split up into two sections— The lower half, the half closer to the orbiter, was full of support systems like power and telemetry, while the upper half contained science experiments. The whole thing was painted in bright white paint that conducted electricity, a critical part of the plasma experiment it hoped to perform. Since we're already down at the desired orbit, let's just get this thing going and I'll explain the plan at the same time as what actually happened. First, since it's really important that TSS not impact any part of the orbiter, the crew issued the command to raise a 12-meter-long boom, two-thirds as long as the payload bay itself. This raised TSS up to the end of what looked like a combination of a radio tower and a cup-and-ball toy, keeping it nice and far away from any orbiter structure. Next, the crew began to spool out the tether, allowing TSS to drift away. This initial stage was actually pretty tricky. Once a good amount of tether was let out, it was expected that it would become pretty stable with the TSS satellite sort of bobbing up to be quote-unquote above the orbiter. You can imagine this like if the orbiter was on the edge of a merry-go-round and is holding a spooled-out yo-yo. If the merry-go-round goes fast enough, the centrifugal force will pull the yo-yo out, away from the center of the merry-go-round, with the orbiter in between. This is the same thing, but instead of a merry-go-round, it's a low-Earth orbit. Instead of a yo-yo, it's TSS. But for that effect to kick in, we have to get a fair amount of tether out first. While the extended portion of the tether is still short, TSS will have to stay away from Atlantis the old-fashioned way, with a thruster. On the bottom of the satellite was a small nitrogen thruster that would allow it to gently pull up on the tether, keeping it taut as it slowly unreeled. The thruster was fed from a nitrogen tank placed in the center of the spherical TSS. The same tank also fed other thrusters which helped it to maintain its attitude. As STS-46 crew member Jeff Hoffman tells in an oral history, the crew actually had to lobby for additional attitude control thrusters to be included. The original plan relied on the tether staying taut during the entire exercise, which would keep it under control. So Hoffman asked the obvious question, what if the tether goes slack? Engineers asked why would the tether ever go slack? Which is the wrong answer to give to an astronaut who has to fly with this thing, and who is also a physicist. The TSS engineers sighed and rigged up some additional attitude control, which would prove to be pretty useful in just a bit here. The boom extended just fine, but problems began soon after that. First, an umbilical that was supposed to pull out of the satellite stayed in place. Thinking that maybe the connector got cold and shrank a bit, the crew flipped the orbiter over and pointed the payload bay towards the Earth, 
relying on a change in lighting conditions to warm up the connector. When that didn't work, they tried issuing the command at the same time as using the shuttle's RCS thrusters to move down, hoping to give it an extra little jolt, and that seemed to do the trick. Not an auspicious start, but hey, we're going. As the deployer system let out more tether, TSS began to move away. The system was capable of deploying as fast as 4.5 meters per second, around 10 miles per hour, but the plan was to start out nice and slow at first. Hoffman commented that the tether was quite a sight to see, catching the light of orbital sunrise and changing colors. The core of the tether was made out of Nomex, which I'm guessing was used just because it's a nice stable polymer. Wrapped around the Nomex was a layer of copper, which allowed the electrical induction experiment to work. Then a layer of insulation, then a layer of Kevlar for strength, and finally a braided layer of Nomex again. Despite all of that, the tether was only about 2.5 millimeters in diameter, which is a little bit thinner than the metal part of a headphone jack. After about 180 meters of tether had been reeled out, problems really began. As Hoffman was watching, he noticed a bunch of wiggles forming in the tether. Wiggles meant that the tether was no longer taut, it had gone slack. Something had slowed down the tether deployment mechanism, but the satellite's low-powered nitrogen thruster was still running, so it bounced off of the end of the tether, creating the slack. Worse, this bounce had not been anticipated, and so the unpredictable dynamics knocked the satellite into a new attitude, with the thruster still running. So now, instead of pulling away from the shuttle, helping to maintain tension in the tether, it was sort of meandering off to the side. This is very bad. If this behavior could not be corrected, the satellite would eventually work its way around the orbiter, wrapping it in its tether like, well, like a tether ball. There's really no way to make that analogy not sound obvious. Now, really this scenario wouldn't actually happen, because with this very scenario in mind, careful procedures had been laid out that would ensure that the crew was never put in any danger by TSS. If the angle of the tether in the payload bay exceeded 45 degrees, that is, if it started to tilt down towards the sides of the payload bay, the tether would be severed and the TSS would fly off into the wild black yonder. In order to prevent that, Mission Commander Shriver hopped onto the orbiter controls at the aft of the flight deck, watching TSS through the overhead windows and scooting the orbiter back underneath it. While Shriver steered the orbiter, Hoffman and Nicolay battled with TSS. Remember those attitude control features that the engineers originally didn't plan to include? Yeah, they ended up being pretty useful here. They were added too late in the process to have the satellite recover on its own, but the astronauts were able to issue commands remotely from the orbiter. This wasn't the simplest thing in the world, since they had to look out the window at this thing 180 meters away and try to steer it, but they eventually got everything back under control. The crew weren't totally sure what had happened, but they suspected that a kink had formed in the tether. In order to get past it, their plan was to reel in a few meters, and then quickly unreel past the problematic part of the tether. The increased reel speed meant that there was more slack on the tether, so the crew had to keep manually steering TSS, but it seemed to do the trick. For about 20 more meters. Alright, that's not great, but 20 meters is still progress. So they tried the same routine again, and it stopped again. At this point, TSS is only 257 meters away from the orbiter, which is a far cry from the 20 kilometers that they were hoping for. In order to buy themselves some time to rest and for the ground to think of a potential solution, 
TSS was powered down to survival levels, and crew members took turns keeping an eye on it. The next day, they started to partially reel TSS back in, and at a distance of 224 meters, it got stuck once again. But now it wouldn't move in either direction. This was a really serious problem, and could have resulted in losing the satellite. While efforts were continued to solve the problem, mission specialists Jeff Hoffman and Franklin Chang-Diaz began pre-breathing in anticipation of a potential contingency EVA to try to manually reel in TSS. It ended up not being necessary, though, since somebody had a pretty clever solution. At this point, they were pretty sure that the problem was that the tether had jammed on the reel, so they just needed to pull extra hard to clear the jam, and then they would be free. They couldn't pull that hard with the motors built into the reel, but the motors that moved the entire boom stand would do the job. They lowered the boom a bit, and then commanded it to clamp onto the tether, and then extended the boom back out again. The boom dragged the jam out of the tether, freeing it. Alright, great, everything's fixed now, right? Actually, the crew suspected that this latest issue was in fact a new problem, and that the original problem was still lurking. So, everyone decided to quit while they were ahead, and reeled TSS back in entirely. The goal had been to reach 20,000 meters, and they were only able to reach 257. So, what happened? I bet you're hoping that I can reveal some fascinating, complex aspect of tether dynamics in a weightless environment that caused this issue. Nah. Remember, in space, the smallest thing will get you. In this case, very late into the process, some engineers noticed that they were slightly below their margin for structural loads on the TSS deployment mechanism. Basically, they had to do a better job attaching it to the orbiter payload bay. The solution was simple enough. They just added an extra bolt, and now everything was firmly attached. Problem solved. Except, numerous tests for this mechanism had already been performed, validating the tether deployment and retraction plan. These tests were not performed again after the bolt had been added, and nobody up the chain was informed about the modification. So, fast forward to orbit when TSS was 180 meters away, and part of the deployment mechanism banged into this stupid bolt, which was just sticking out right in the way. By sort of winding up and rushing past the 180 meter mark, the crew were able to force some machinery to fight back against the bolt, but the bolt was always going to win. Since the bolt pushed things into an unexpected configuration, when they started pulling the tether back in, it didn't wind on the reel properly, leading to the jam. Finally, when they used the boom motors to overcome the jam, they were able to continue reeling it back in since now they were past the bolt again. So it was actually two separate problems. In this case, the crew were never really in any danger, but a lot of time, effort, money, and the precious opportunity to do interesting science in orbit were all wasted because somebody thought that something was too small to follow the process. Spaceflight will never tolerate carelessness, incapacity, and neglect. Perhaps in an attempt to save future podcasters from ending an episode on a downer, STS-46 had one more major experiment planned. The Evaluation of Oxygen Interaction with Materials Experiment. Not the most poetic name, but I'll take it. As we've discussed a few times now, materials don't always react well to the atomic oxygen that they encounter in low Earth orbit. It basically starts melting stuff away over time. 
Since NASA was planning on launching a space station in a few years, they wanted to be sure that they didn't accidentally build it out of material that would wilt in the face of atomic oxygen. So, mounted in Atlantis's payload bay were a sample of materials that engineers wanted to better understand. Since a space station would be in space for years, and STS-46 would not, Commander Shriver lowered Atlantis's orbit still further, seeking the ever-so-slightly thicker air available at lower altitudes. The thicker air would have more atomic oxygen and allow them to induce material degradation faster. After performing two burns to lower and then circularize their orbit, Atlantis was skimming the upper atmosphere at a mere 230 kilometers. 230 kilometers above the surface of the Earth might not seem very low, but let me put it this way. When Europe launched their Earth observation satellite named Gravity Field and Steady State Ocean Circulation Explorer, they wanted to be as low as possible. They were so low that the satellite literally had little wings built into it and a low-thrust engine that was constantly running to counteract the drag. That thing flew at 250 kilometers, 20 kilometers higher. Jeff Hoffman said that the view was the most visually spectacular thing he's ever done on the shuttle, not just because they were super close to the ground, but because the shuttle flying through the atomic oxygen caused a bright orange glow to build on the orbiter's surfaces, bright enough to see with the naked eye. And that sounds like a pretty good time to me. Near the start of the flight, the mission was extended by one day due to the trouble getting Eureka out the door and then near the end of the flight, it was extended by one revolution due to bad weather at Florida. After one last trip around the world, the weather cleared up, and Atlantis was given the go for landing at the Kennedy Space Center. After 7 days, 23 hours, 15 minutes, 2 seconds, and 257 tantalizing meters, the mission was over. The tethered satellite system accomplished some of its goals, but was largely a failure due to the unexpected protruding bolt. But the solution to this problem was simple, and the promise of the experiment was high, so TSS, along with much of this crew, will fly again a few years down the road, with much better results. But, well, let's just say that on that flight, mission engineers will learn once again that the smallest thing can get you. It's been a little while since I've recommended a book on the show, so I thought I'd give a little shout-out to one that I found to be particularly useful. Partnership in Space by Ben Evans. Partnership is a series of books covering human space exploration, with this book in particular focusing on the mid to late 1990s. Evans has an approach sort of similar to my own. Each mission gets coverage that weaves mission details together with oral histories and astronaut interviews, along with other interesting facts, all to craft a narrative about what each mission accomplished. So, if you've ever wished that I would write a book, the books written by Ben Evans are pretty close to what I think a text-based The Space Above Us would be, and they're well worth the read. If you just want to get a taste of them, you can head to americaspace.com, where Evans has written numerous articles on historical shuttle missions using material from his books. Good stuff. Next time, Endeavor is back on the launch pad for its second flight. In its payload bay, we find Space Lab, packed full of experiments sponsored by Japan. Ganbarimasu! Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass. Ganbarimasu!